When something happens to your kitchen, you might say, This is ludicrous. But that won't fix your home. That will only get you the rapper, Ludicrous. Having trouble? Don't panic. Don't be alarmed. You need to file a claim? Holler at State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. You can file a claim on the app or call us. Thanks, Mr. Chris. No matter how ludicrous the situation, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. If I don't want to be a CMO, then who cares? Then, it's, then actually, I, I feel like I am failing myself because I'm actually not showing up for what I really want to be doing or how I really want to be you know, engaged or how I want to expand. If I've done something for 20 years, then I can choose to leave it too. Hey everyone, welcome to Human to Human, a Revolt Network podcast. Human to Human is a space to reimagine self-love, strengthen interpersonal relationships, and peel back the layers of the human experience, one conversation at a time. I'm your host, Stacey Ike, and I'm so glad you're here. Today's special guest is advisor, possibility pusher, writer, and my new friend tour, Daria Burke. Daria and I got human to human about the recovering perfectionism process, being a beginner again after mastery, and the lies of imposter syndrome. The whole conversation felt like we were in a weekly support group meeting, so just please be prepared to be encouraged and inspired. Before each episode, I like to share a song to add to your playlist, a book to check out, and a reflection question inspired by the episode. So here we go. This week's song of the week is This Is Me from The Greatest Showman Soundtrack. This week's book is The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks, recently referred to me by today's guest. And while you're listening, reflect on this question. If you have ever believed in imposter syndrome, what lie is it that you're holding on to? Does it make you feel safe or protected? Or are you willing to let it go to make room for possibility? Yeah, I dropped a big one on you. But after listening to this episode, you will know why. Now, let's get human to human with Daria Burke. I am so excited because we met through a mutual friend. You call her friend. I'm going to call her friend tour because she's on my friend tour list, Keisha Boyd. So shout out yes. to her. Yeah. And I, when I was preparing for our chat, I was like, I want to name this the recovering perfectionism chat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel like this is like a chat room actually, <laughs> because I think there's a lot of people that can relate to that. I think I, you know, my recovery process, I've been giving you more intel about it as we've continued to get to know each other, but I'm so excited to hear more about your recovery process. So I first want to start with, when did you go into recovery? Ooh, probably seven or eight years ago. I think it's hard to say because I think we're constantly tackling little things. Like, look, if I'm, if I'm going way back, I would say when I stopped biting my nails and like that stopped being a thing. It's such a funny thing I've never shared. I was an adult nail biter. I bit my nails until I was like 26 years old. So if we're going that far back, um, much longer than five or six years without saying more than that. Um, And it really was such a bizarre relationship that I had to doing it because it was obviously impulsive and habitual, but it was also something I was so deeply ashamed of. And as somebody who tends to be very put together, very composed, like it was shocking to people when they realized that I bit my nails. So I think honestly, it was just being able to say that out loud and accept it and 
slowly move my way into heavier, deeper things. I mean, look, I think everything we do is connected to something else. So I'm not saying that that's a small thing, but I think my awareness around it and my awareness that I had shame around it um, Mm. was something that I was very intentional about tackling. And it was in parallel with quitting, but it was with this real deep desire to give myself grace along the way and Mm -hmm. to not feel shamed or burdened by the shame of people sort of like noticing, you know, I had these like terrible (laughs) chewed up nails. Yeah. I was, I was going to ask what was the shame rooted in? I think it, it didn't fit with the rest of what people's experience of me was. And so it was like this exposure point that might indicate that I had, you know, whether it was a tendency towards anxiety or that when I was stressed, this was how it showed up. It showed up in my physicality. And because I was so thoughtful about the physical nature in which I showed up, that was something that I couldn't hide. So it felt very revealing in an odd way. And we, you know, I talk with my hands. So people are noticing when, you know, you're gesturing towards your face and things like that too. Yeah. Wow. No, I completely understand that. What do you think your perfectionism was trying to protect you from? Oh man, that's a deep one. So many things. I think a few, there are a few answers to that question. I'll try to be brief. I think the first was growing up as a black girl in Detroit and being very clearly told under no uncertain terms that you have to work twice as hard, be twice as good, jump twice as high, run twice as fast, you know? And I think what, and we all know why that messaging is hammered home. It's to ensure that you are prepared, that you do what you need to do to be successful and that you understand that you can't be you can never be too good for a situation. What that inherently says, though, is that you're not good enough as you are. And so you've got to overperform mm-hmm. and over-demonstrate and over, you know, over everything um, to sort of course correct for just being Black and female. So that, I think, is very deeply rooted. That goes really far back. And then the other piece of it is just that I didn't grow up in a family household where my needs were being met. And I didn't want that to be obvious when I went to school. And so it was easier Mm -hmm. to look cared for and to eliminate questions or doubt that perhaps my mom actually wasn't around that much or, you know, that there wasn't an adult physically present in the home on a, on a consistent basis. Um, so it's, it's sort of both of those things, I think at the same time, and it's hard to untangle which is which, and then Mm. we're not going to bring my astrology into it. (laughs) I mean, we We can, can. you know, it's important. It's a part of you. It's so, I I know I am such, I'm so into astrology, but I also think that some of that is just how we're wired. And I have, a lot of Libra in my chart. And so there's a, there's a very deep 
which is ruled by Venus. So there's a very deep love and res- respect and reverence and connection to beauty all in all ways, not just physical, not mm. just on the outside. And my Venus is in Virgo, which is, you know, a lot of detail and, and can be perfectionistic. So I look, I think it's nature and nurture, if I'm being really honest. And um, it, it can be difficult to know how to separate those two things out. And so I think for me, I focus on, I consider my perfectionist behavior at play when there's a negative emotion on the other side of it. If I feel like I'm trying to hide a feeling of shame or I'm trying to hide a feeling of not worthiness or not enoughness in a moment, you know, if there's something that I know for sure that I'm trying to respond in a way that feels outwardly performative. That's how I know it's perfectionism as opposed to just liking nice things and wanting to look good and feeling great when I look good. You know, I think those are for me indicators of, of when that's at work. Ooh, I love that like differentiation. And I'm in my head, I'm thinking, well, how do you call out when you know, oh, this is my perfection. Did you call it out in the moment? Let's say you're even in a meeting and you recognize I am currently overcompensating mm-hmm. or I am currently doing this. Do you call it out in the moment? Do you just internally and aware and maybe change in that conversation, but you don't necessarily need to address it to the other person because they might not know, but that next level of vulnerability could be that. So I wonder what yeah, that Yeah, it like. depends on the setting. I would say I feel that less so professionally. I think- there's a level mm. of mastery that we get to professionally. And when you know, when you know your shit, like it's easier to just show up and be fully present and steeped in that knowledge and, and right. not feel uh, as, as much at risk of being exposed to something that you don't know um, or compensating. But in a, in personal settings, yeah, I mean, look, if sometimes I'm talking to a friend and I say something that I feel is really the most PC version of something, for whatever reason, I might say, okay, that was really PC. Here's the here's the full frontal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then you know, and 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 if it's a bigger audience, I might just notice it and correct in real time and intentionally do something off, whether it's goofy or funny or, you know, as a way of bringing my whole self back into. Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cut off? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. That moment. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, I love that. Cause I think there, I, I had a conversation with a friend yesterday and we kind of started off a little like, how are you? Of course I'm good. I'm good. And then by the end it was like, girl, girl, girl. And I was like, oh my God, I love how we got there in less than 30 minutes. Hello. Like let's get there faster. And you know, sometimes it's hard to start that way. And so, cause you, you also want to protect your friend maybe from like the, the quote unquote drama of your life or, or whatever. And she was probably doing the same. And we just had a moment of like, but if we can touch base in that drama, we'll probably leave with a little yeah. less. So yes, it does <laughs> yeah. start with answering. If someone asks how you're doing, just answering honestly. And yeah. it's okay yeah. to pause before you respond. Mm-hmm. I think the instinct is to just say, I'm fine. I'm great. I'm doing well. And that might be true. And maybe that's all you want to share in that moment. And that's okay. And that's still, I think, very authentic. 
But I think it's okay mm-hmm. to also pause and, and check in if you haven't already. That's an opportunity when someone asks how you're doing. It's a moment to check in with yourself and think like, how am I doing right now? Mm-hmm. And that's, I think that's mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. And be willing mm-hmm. to do that. I love that. I want to circle back to your childhood because you mentioned like walking into school and wanting to, you know, present differently than you were living. So first, what was your home like within in the house that you lived externally? My mother, so my parents were divorced um, when I was eight, but they had separated when I was about two years old. So I actually don't really have memories of them being together in the household. And, And my sister and I were raised by my mom. So as a single mom, she raised us. And by, I would say, age seven or eight, um, my earliest memories of her drug addiction became very clear to me. And so it it was inconsistent, I think, is, is the easiest way to answer that. But that inconsistency looked mm-hmm. like having lots of different people in and out of the house. It looked like not having a working telephone or, you know, different utilities being turned off at any point in time. Uh, it looked like sometimes we didn't have food and I ate only ate at school or if I went over to a friend's house after school and had dinner, um, it looked like as I got a little bit older, I would say nine, 10, kind of heading into middle school, um, you know, my mom would be gone for a day, two days, three days at a time. So it it, it, it expanded, I think, in its randomness. Um, and, and so that was, and so that meant at that age, you know, at such an early age, um, third grade or so third, fourth grade that I normally most, a lot of kids are still, their moms are still combing their hair. They're still pressing their clothes. They're still getting them dressed and helping them get dressed for school in some way. I was doing all of that on my own, very much on my own, choosing what I was going to wear and how it was going to be pulled together and making sure that it looked, it looked taken care of. And, and, you know, my homework was always done and I was a straight A student for ever. So, um, that helped, mm-hmm. you know, when, when students aren't, when students are doing well, it can be such a great way to hide if you're in crisis. So I think my ability to do well in school was also one way, another way of, of appearing, you know, cared for. Yeah. Were you angry? Not at that age. Were you scared? Not at that age. I was, I would say probably more afraid first that if someone found out that maybe child protective services would come, um, that was for sure a threat that we heard growing up. So I think that was my first real fear was of the separation from my home and from my sister. And then, and then I learned shame. You know, I think I, I learned to be ashamed of that being my reality. And it was really I think the shame of no one caring. Mm. And then it was, would the ideas that people have about a mother who would behave this way, how would that reflect on me? What would people think about me? But it it didn't start that way. You know, that was something I, I picked up <laughs> along the way. Um, and had to- what, what, what showed you that? What showed you that? to pick it up? Was it other people's experiences with their mothers? Mm. Was it what you were seeing at school or what you were feeling? Like what 
started adding or teaching you, this is shame. And this is why I'm, why I feel ashamed. I wouldn't have labeled it shame at that age. I didn't know what uh-huh. to call it, but I think seeing other kids who had parents that behaved really differently was an indication that something was really off. And mm. I think when you don't feel particularly safe at home and you don't want to have friends over, because you don't want people to ask questions. I think those were the things that indicated for me that there was, it was more than just a fear. It was, oh gosh, like I don't want anyone to know that if they come over, then, you know, we, we won't have food or I wouldn't give my friends my phone number. You know, I remember saying I'm not allowed to talk on the phone because um, we didn't have a working telephone mm-hmm. or I would have to give my uncle's phone number to the school when we were filling out anything. So I think, you know, things like that add up. And when you're just old enough to observe patterns of behavior that are more unlike yours than they are similar, I think you start to ask questions about what's air quote normal and what's, Mm. what's not. And, you know, one of these things is not like the other. (laughs) Right. Right. And, and you talked about like, people not caring was that teachers did you did you get a chance to reach out or did you kind of go against the reaching out was it more of like family not caring or was it other people that you were kind of hoping would notice i i don't think that well i want to be clear i think that a lot of people cared i think how we show that looks really different and how people choose mm. to the level of awareness people have and how they choose to deal with it once they're in their, it's in their consciousness, I think is really personal. And I think it's also difficult when you're dealing with a parent and their children. So I think with, with family, I think that there was just a very hard line to, to cross. I think boundaries felt difficult to cross with at school. No one had any idea. No one had a clue. Mm. I would argue that it's likely, I think that if anyone had any indication, it would have been when, if if we were absent from school and there was more of a noticeable absence from school on a period of time, like on a basis that didn't make sense. And I think, you know, that would, could be a result of lots of reasons, but you know, my, sometimes my mom would just keep us home because she wanted company. Sometimes she would keep us home because she was, not feeling well after she, you know, been out for a couple of days. Um, sometimes she kept us home because she was vomiting and sick because she was in the middle of uh, a withdrawal period and and sort of, you know, so I think that if anything was an indication, but I think it was probably even more difficult to reconcile because when I was at school, I didn't seem out of sorts. You know, I didn't have bad behavior. I wasn't getting into trouble. Uh, I, I was doing good, doing, you know, making good grades and doing well in school. So I think there was probably a little bit of that, but um, no, there wasn't a very clear understanding from most of the adults, I would say in my life that there was an awareness of a problem that would necessitate inter- any kind of intervention in a meaningful way. So that's a lot of weight. Yeah. That's a lot away. And your sister's younger. That's right. 14 months. So I'm going to ask about you guys' relationship, of course, but, or I'm just very curious, but I, 
when when you are now the adult in your life, where I asked you earlier about when fear turned into anger, was that in adulthood? Was that in high school? Where was that? Because you've had you've had so many layers of emotions and so many experiences that have taken you that. So now we're leave, we're leaving fear. When do we? Yeah, get anger? we went from fear to shame to. I think shame and anger mm. coexisted for a long time because, and, and they probably started in the middle school because that was when I was able to exert more independence. I was joining the cheer team. I was doing competitive cheer. And so I had different needs um, that my mother couldn't meet. Those needs started to become more obvious and whether they were, it was financial, whether it was, you know, it was like, as we grew, there was less to there for us in a way, things got smaller as we got mm -hmm. bigger and our needs got bigger. So I think I became more angry that my needs were expanding and I, I felt very much out of control and in, in how I- Hey there, ever thought about what makes your heart beat a little faster? Oh, you mean like when you discover a new track that just speaks to you? Yeah, or finding a movie that you can't stop thinking about? Well, get ready to feel that excitement all over again because Amazon Prime is here to take your entertainment and shopping experience to the next level. Absolutely. Prime isn't just about getting your packages quicker. It's about diving into a world of endless possibilities, from the latest releases to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. And don't even get me started on the music. Prime offers concert specials that will transport you right to the front room. It's like being at the hottest gigs without leaving your living room. I use Prime to tap in with some of my favorite artists' live shows from any and every genre of music. Trust me, Prime is a game changer. It's like having a personalized superstore and entertainment hub right at your fingertips. So why wait? Head over to Amazon.com forward slash Prime and start experiencing entertainment like never before. I could meet those needs. I think high school, I became, I was angry, but I think I was really starting to disconnect and detach in a way um, from, well, I should say, I always felt clear that it wasn't my life that I was living, that it was circumstantial. That was a deep belief that I've had for such a long time. I don't even remember when I first had that recognition, but it was very clear to me when it, when it dawned on me that this wasn't my life and that I was just in a temporary situation. So did you and your sister share that? I don't know that we did, to be honest. We've never discussed it, I don't think. And, and, uh, but I don't, I don't, I would guess that maybe we didn't share that if I think about the paths that we've chosen, but I don't, I don't know how she thought about it or how she contextualized it, kind of what the story she was able to tell herself about our situation was as even as close as we were. It's an interesting, interesting question. Mm, mm. So anyway, you were going to continue to say about when, you know, you realize, okay, this is circumstantial. Yeah. And so I think that awareness came early and I think I wrestled with, I probably became more angry as that became clear because then it felt like a choice that my mom was making to be addicted, to not get help, to have her children in an environment that just wasn't good for us. And I can't imagine the level of feeling out of control that a person might have in that situation. So obviously now I have a, a different 
perspective on it and anger wouldn't have been the emotion that I would have reached for. But I think being a young person and going through puberty and then going, you know, into middle school, high school and, and feeling like she was making bad choices, I think was, Mm. was maddening, you know? And I think it was the easiest, it's often the easiest, I think, emotion that we can grab onto when we understand that we may have some agency at some point. And when we feel like we have when there's a clear wrong that's happening and we feel powerless, I think anger tends to be the emotion that we reach for in those situations. And I think when you're young and you don't have the language for what you're experiencing and you don't, you can't put it fully in context. Um, I think that's how it shows up a lot of times. And and it didn't show, it was very internal anger. Let's be clear. I wasn't going around yeah. being an angry person. Um, I was very much yeah. a people pleaser, very much. Uh, people would call me happy-go-lucky. I was really trying to channel the other side of who I was, you know, and kind of move through the world yeah. with that, with that posture, as opposed to being an angry person. Um, I, yeah, I was for sure. I was angry and I felt, um, it felt unfair to, you know, have to grapple with that. Yeah. You just mentioned the knowing of a different perspective now that you're older, now that you have more wisdom, now that you've lived life more, you understand your agency more. There has to be a lot of emotions that happen still between anger and healing. Can you take me through the next? Oh to the my next God, one? of course. I mean, if I think about my healing journey, broad strokes, I would say it went from dissociation to starting to just acknowledge to integration to owning my story. And so I think there are some emotions that sit with you throughout all of those phases. I think sadness is one that is always going to be there. You know, I think you're always grieving, whether you're grieving a loss because it, it, you remember the shift where something changed or you're grieving something that you never had. I think though that's sad. And I think that when you can allow yourself to feel the grief, it makes space for other emotions to coexist. And so you can also feel gratitude. I think you can also feel grace for yourself and compassion, both for yourself and for your parents. I mean, I remember the, the grief, if, if anything, I've, I've probably grieved the life that my mom didn't get to have for her mm. and, and, and yeah. grieving, not being able to be a daughter who watched her mother expand to her potential. I think that's sad. So I think once you can name what it is that you're in and what it is that you're really grappling with. I think what it really does is it just makes way for all these other emotions to come in. And it doesn't mean that they don't trade places sometimes, but I think that ultimately it's a way of really being, you know, fully expressed and having that whole experience and not allowing your one state of emotions um, dictate yeah, how you move through through anything. I don't think that we, I don't think that's the way the toolkit works. I think that we have to have mm-hmm. access to the range of our emotions, even when they're happening simultaneously, in order to figure out how to get through a particular moment in time. 
Yeah. And I love that you just mentioned that. And I'm, I'm going to assume that you're saying the key to being able to experience multiple emotions at one time is the acknowledgement. Yes. I think it's the acknowledgement, but I think it's making sure that you have a container big enough for your feelings. Like just, it, you have to know that you can survive your feelings. You can survive your emotions. I think when, once you know that you can survive your emotions, you can make space for them. Once you start to make space for them, that container can grow a little bit bigger for other ones to come in. So to me, I think it was the awareness that by accepting and integrating, acknowledging and integrating what happened to me and owning my story, that I'm not going to be laid out on the floor. I'll never get up off the ground, right? I think the moment that I knew that I could survive, mm -hmm. it, saying it out loud, and it, it be it's still being true, being more true now because I've said it out loud, that I'm actually expanding how I can heal and what that journey looks like. And the people who might play a role in my healing journey, that it's not a singular and solo effort. And it's not, it's for sure, it's not linear. So I think honestly, that's what for me it was. It was that first awareness that I can, I can get through this. I can survive this. Or as, you know, Glennon Doyle says, we can do hard things. Once we realize that we can do that, I think we naturally create more space for other things to be possible. That is so good because that is a lot of what the perfectionism mm -hmm. is. It's, it's blocking from other emotions and other experiences and other truths that can happen at the same time and still lead you to the goals you want without all of the weight, like genuinely. Well, I mean, not. where's the humanity in perfectionism? They're like yeah. you can't be, you can't perform to some standard that by the way, doesn't exist. That's fully contrived and manufactured and the bar will always move and also be human. Because the human experience is much more vast than that. It's not, it's not singular and it's for sure not perfect. So yeah. Yeah. What's your relationship with your sister like now? And what's your relationship with your mom? I don't have a relationship with my mother. It's been 20 years since mm -hmm. I decided to leave that relationship and to understand that as long as she was in denial that we, we didn't have a space for, for healing. I think that you have to be able to, just like we talked about, right. The, the, the experiences, the feelings, the emotions, they have to be able to come to the surface, uh, with authenticity and you have to have a container for that. And, and we haven't had that. And it's not to say that we won't, I, I don't know what the future holds, but I, two things can be true that it cannot work presently and that it can change. And my sister and I, you know, we've grown, we obviously grew up together and we grew in such different ways. She became a wife and a mother at a young age and has given me four incredible nieces and nephews, um, who are almost all grown now. And, um, mm. and, you know, she's really built a very impressive life for herself. And so I think we have a lot of, obviously a lot of love for each other and a lot of respect for each other too. And, and I think recognizing that we had to take very different paths, we were always going to be different people taking different paths, but I think having the, uh, the kind of the reckoning, you know, when you're, when you're that close in age and I know you have siblings, but you know, it's the two of us were 14 months apart. So we used to have fantasies that we would 
grow up together. We'd have kids at the same time. We, you know, all these things that happen sort of in tandem. Mm -hmm. And I think once that it was clear that that was not happening, being able to still find points of connection for our relationship, even though we're. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Super different. And, um, you know, we, we, but we, it's funny, we still have the same sense of humor. There are certain things that we could both laugh about for hours. And, um, and, you know, and I think having those points of connection obviously are, are really, really important, um, even when you're really different. And I think that's tough with family because family dynamics tend to dictate how people want things to go forever. And we definitely went through a period sure. where, I sort of broke the rules of engagement because I started behaving differently and, you know, we had to reestablish boundaries. We had to redefine our relationship in the context of who we were at that moment. And it constantly, I mean, we're, I think we're always redefining to some extent our relationship as her kids become adults and as we entered new phases of our own lives. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, I feel very fortunate that, we sort of got to be in that together and bear witness to each other's growth and evolution and also allow each other the space to become whoever it is that we were choosing to become. Yeah. 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 During that time where you guys were reestablishing boundaries, were you able to communicate your new operating systems or did you have to have her experience the newness of you and then the communication happened. A bit of both. I think I went away to college and she was still home. So I think that was the first step in doing that. And mm -hmm. so I think every mm -hmm. physical move has, because I stayed in the state of Michigan and I went to the University of Michigan. So I think every physical move was a, a, a real moment, a real opportunity, um, an anchor point to redefine that because then it was, well, how often are you flying home and are you coming home for these holidays? And so it was a bit of both. And I think learning as we go, and because she was such a young mom, she got married. And by the time I finished college, she had had both of her daughters. So I think both of us were, were defining and redefining right. boundaries yeah. in real time as, as life, as we were creating really different lives. Yeah. And I think mm. it, in a way it was good because a lot of people don't have those conversations. They just want people to get it and kind of get along with the program. Yeah. And it's like, well, you changed the game though. Like I changed the game when I moved, right? Yeah. She changed the game yeah. when she yeah. got married and had kids because she had a different family. So I think you mm -hmm. kind of have to have those conversations. And um, I'm not saying they're always easy, but I think they're, they're necessary. And when you can have them, even if they're, full of friction at the, at that moment in time, you're better for it. And you start to learn mm -hmm. how to do it. And you start to learn how to ask where the line is and not mm -hmm. assume where the line is and, you know, ask mm -hmm. when you're crossing, when you might be crossing it, <laughs> but it's hard. <laughs> it is hard. And this is the practice of deepening relationships with others without shame and, and fear. I mean, truly like, we just don't have as much practice in deepening the relationships, asking those questions. 
again, you've already kind of said that you learned that along the way. We're all learning it along the way. And I'm just wondering, are some, are some things, are there some things now you can drop and say like, well, here's two or three questions that I thought were really helpful that I learned. And now I use, you know, really frequently that people can, can learn from. Yes. Well, I would start by saying, you've heard me say this before. Growth is a practice. Mm-hmm. I think people think that they just grow and they're just, they just show up someplace <laughs> like that. I don't know what place you think you're going to show up, but that's not how it works. And so it's a practice. Uh, it's active. And it also means that you, you will always have room. There will always be something else. You may take a step back. That is okay. I think some of the questions that I, well, I've asked outright to, to the people in my life is, Am I a good ex to you, right? Friend, family member. Um, do I show up in the way that you feel supported? Or is there something I can do more of in our relationship where you feel supported? I'll give an example with my niece. I hope she doesn't mind this, but she is one of my best friends. She's 23. And we're very, very close. And she's now an adult. And we had a moment, even this past Thanksgiving, she came, she stayed with me and we had a few days together, which was so fun. And she, we had this conversation where she was, you know, like, I feel like you don't take me seriously. I feel like you're not listening. I feel like you are discounting what I'm trying to say or what I think I should be doing in this moment. And at first I was like, oh my gosh, no, I just want to be supportive. I just want to be here for you. You know, I'm projecting what I wish I had at that age onto Mm -hmm. her. And then I said, but I received that and I need to, I need to listen. I need to take that back and like, let that sit with me. And it allowed me to go back to her and to say, you're right. I need to be reintroduced to who you are at this moment in your life. And I need to understand that my unsolicited advice is not always welcome, even though, you know, it comes from my heart. So I would say, you know, one, asking yourself, just do that audit of the relationships in your lives. Like, do you, do I have the relationship in my life that I want? Do I have the capacity to show up in the way that I want? Am I intentional about it? And am I asking that person if how I'm showing up is actually supportive for them too. I think that's a really important one. Um, it, it has to start with yourself, but I think, you know, we're talking about in the context of loved ones and relationships. So I would say that's, that's a set of questions around that, but being intentional is for me just at the heart of, of all of it. I think in terms of the broader growth and how do I know what, where, what, where I am on the path and on the journey, I think there's just the checking in how does my life feel right now to me? And use the words that you want. Whatever comes to mind, it actually should be something you don't have to think about. What does my life feel like? And does my life feel like what my my values are? Does my life, is the infrastructure of my life designed to support how I want it to feel? Someone said to me mm. a few years ago that um, my life seems so romantic. And I thought that was such a really wonderful thing to say. And I, you know, I said, well, yeah, I mean, if I'm not in love with my life, then I got to mix it. I got to change some things. Like I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it right. And it doesn't mean that you're always in love with everything about your life every day, but 
on average on the whole, yeah, that's, that's my goal. And that looks really specific to me. So a, a big, big question that I love to ask everybody uh, to, to ponder is if I had everything that I wanted, and I'm no, I don't mean material things, but you know, what would my life look like if I had everything I wanted? And really meditate on that, journal that, you know, talk, talk through it, voice memo it, whatever feels right. And allow yourself to witness what you're saying about your life and do that audit to say, now, does the infrastructure of my life actually ladder back to those things? Am I doing things on a daily basis that actually support what I just said I wanted my life to look like? Hmm. Oh my God, I have like three questions now. Oh my gosh. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. That was, that audit was, wow. I just, I've, I have four younger siblings, right? So being the oldest, there's two people I owe an audit mm -hmm. to because I think sometimes like the two younger ones, they're 17 and 20 and they have definitely been like, Hey, so like you're a great big sister, but sometimes I just want you to be a big sister and like, I don't need a second mm -hmm. mom. And I'm like, I don't want to be your second mom either. Like, I'm, you know, and I just, oh, it was such a yeah. moment because this girl could, my sister like clearly articulated and my brother, they both did. They were like, you know, sometimes you just give advice and it's like, I just wanted a listening ear. And, you know, as a communicator for a living, you're thinking like, <laughs> I've mastered Obviously this. <laughs> should listen to me. Meanwhile, they're like, cool, cool, cool. Thanks. Yeah. I, it's so true. And I, and in a lot of ways I did mother my sister and I'm sure in a lot of ways you have mothered your younger siblings. And I think mm. for me, what I would add to that is, is absolving myself from the responsibility. She's my family, but she's yeah. not my business. Yes. And so <laughs> I know three friends who are going to tell me about that. I already know. Right. Because it, it, it's, it's this practice. I think we've talked a little bit about this offline of like connected detachment, being deeply, sincerely, authentically connected to whatever it is, whether it's your work, whether it's relationships, family, a, a certain situation, but, but detached from the outcome and detached from how things necessarily unfold. And so I think you have to kind of have that with family, especially with younger siblings. It's tough. I've, I spent a lot. When something happens to your kitchen, you might say, this is ludicrous. But that won't fix your home. That will only get you the rapper ludicrous. Having trouble? Don't panic. Don't be alarmed. You need to file a claim? Holla at State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. You can file a claim on the app or call us. Thanks, Mr. Chris. No matter how ludicrous the situation, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. Out of time in therapy many years ago, working through this feeling of I'm responsible for her and having mm -hmm. to let that go. Because they're realizing that even though she had you know, been married and since divorced and four kids and they're grown, and that I still had this responsibility for her and I, I was like, you don't, you actually don't. And she knows that. And, and so it's okay. Like you're not going to let her down when you mm. set down this burden of feeling responsible for somebody. Cause yeah, I think that's where you start crossing boundaries thinking that you got, you got to tell people what to do. Yeah. Do you think that burden is something we hold on to as a part of the perfectionism? It can be. I don't know if it always is. I think it, it really depends on what 
how you've allocated value to what that says about you. And so for me, it was less mm. about being a perfectionist in the context of my sister. It was more about just genuinely, deeply feeling responsible, both being told to some extent as a young person, as a kid, you know, like you take care of your younger siblings. That's a mm. very literal mm. guidance that I received. But then having the the household that we had, you know, growing up in the household that we grew up in, um, in some ways that felt necessary, that felt real. And so when I was in high school and waiting tables, I gave my sister bus fare to go mm. to school, right? So I think there are, sometimes we really do feel responsible because um, in some ways we really are. And, but that doesn't, it's not a permanent state. Yes, yeah. exactly, exactly. You've talked a lot about, well, I, you know what? I actually just pulled that from our personal conversations because I was about to say something that like you've talked to me mm. personally a lot about fear and being able to like analyze fear. And I just wanted to bring that to this conversation because it's been such an amazing add to my toolkit of being able to be in relationship with you in that way and talk about those things and just go ahead and express the fear and then be like, okay, let's, let's dissect it really quick and then remove the things we need to remove and then realize, oh, look at that, mm -hmm. not fear anymore. You know, like that has happened to us a few times. And so fear is such a common thing, shame, like they, they could be very intertwined together and we all experience it at different times in our lives for different mm -hmm. reasons. How can we objectively analyze our fear? I think you have to objectify it. First of all, I actually think that when you bear witness to your fear, separate and apart from who you are, it takes a different shape. And so I've, I've written about this. I have, yes, you and I have talked a lot about this. And one of my favorite exercises to do is to write a letter to myself from my fear. I only give it about five minutes now. I'm not going to give it, fear don't need that much time, but you know, give it the floor <laughs> and allow it to stream of consciousness, set the timer and just sit down and, and dear Daria, dear Stacy, dear self, this is your fear. And this is what I'd like you to know and let it give it the floor. Mm. Let's see what it says. You'd be shocked what you will say to you when you, when you create that distance and then when you can look at it and you can separate from it, you can start to bring that into your awareness. I think so much of it, when it's in our heads, we can't detach from it and we can't separate it from us. Like you are not your thoughts. Right. And so putting mm. your thoughts, especially specifically fearful ones, um, on a page, I think is such a powerful way of starting to do that and bringing that into awareness and then bringing it into consciousness. Cause then you can see what, what the fear is actually saying. The fear might just be saying, look, I'm, I'm, I have kept you safe your whole life. And there was a time where I had to work really, really hard to keep you safe. And that's still my mode. And I need to learn how to downshift. Your fear might say, Look, I don't know the difference between jumping off a cliff and getting mauled by a bear and starting this next next project that's really scary. So I just show up when things don't feel right. <laughs> right? You a little uncomfortable? I'm and here yeah, for you. <laughs> it, like you feel off kilter, off balance, 
out of sorts. And so I'm going to show up, like, just know that. And that might be what your fear says. And then you can say, cool, cool, cool. Thanks for, thanks for playing. Thanks for being here. Appreciate it. I know you've got my back. I don't need you today though. Like you can kind of have that separation and know the difference between when it's valuable and when it's not. It's valuable if you're going to get mauled by a bear. It's not valuable when you're going to try something new. And you can sort of put it again, you can contextualize it. So I like to, I like to try as much as I can, all the feelings, whatever the feelings are, but fear is a big one where I will just write a note to myself from my fear, let it tell me what it has to say. And then I get to sort of respond back, if you will, in how, in what I do next. Um, and I might, I might respond out loud. <laughs> I might just go, yo, that's crazy. I didn't even realize that was what was operating there. And I think it's also very easy as a result to, to take shame out of a lot of things when you can do that. Hmm. I really love that. Wow. I really, I hope that we all are able to take that as a, as a great tool and not, and, and hope to not even add any, like you said, stream of consciousness. It's some, it's not another thing to feel you got to do it a certain way. It's just a thing you can do to That's release. Right. And we need to keep That's it right. that simple. That's right. Keep it that That's simple. Right. Yeah. I love that. I, you, you, well, you have carried so many incredible titles throughout your career from such a transition from your home life to your school life to like who you are through your healing. And then you have this explosive, very impressive career, but I don't, by knowing you, I don't feel like you hold any of your titles as your current title. So I'd love for you to walk us through some of your old titles, some of your most recent, even the ones you're the most proud of, and then what you identify as and who you identify as now. Ooh, I love this question. I don't, carry my titles at all, at all. And, and it doesn't mean that I didn't at one point in my life. It's fortunately been a long time since my identity and what I do have felt intertwined. Mm. Um, and so I've had the title of university student and then MBA graduate. I have had titles in companies like L'Oreal and Estee Lauder. Um, my most recent title was Chief Marketing Officer uh, at Just Fab. I also have title as a board director on the board of several companies. And I suppose angel investor is a title. Um, I see it more as an action and a way of showing my values through my money. Um, and I think getting to your question, that's probably a, a strong bridge to it, really, that my goal is to live my values and allow my contribution, my life's contribution to show up through my work. And so that may change. The ways in which that shows up may change. So I think when we get to attach to a title, um, we don't allow ourselves to explore and to expand how else we might show up in the world. And I think, look, a lot of people are getting laid off right now. There are massive shifts that are happening across industries. I think people are confronted more than ever with, with that exact question of how do I want to define myself? And you and I have talked about being souls 
in a human experience, right? And so if that's the case, I really just focus on the the ways in which I want how I show up in the world to be of use, um, to be of service. If 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 I can leave every conversation that I have with someone where they feel seen, they feel known, they feel inspired, they feel held, like that to me is more important than anything. And that's true for if I'm on the on the phone with an entrepreneur who wants to talk about raising fundraising or with one of the CEOs of the companies I'm on the board of, or it, it doesn't matter us having this conversation and someone listening, like that is always my intention. Mm-hmm. And so that's deeply rooted in how I want people's experience of me to, to be because I, I, I value that. Um, not because I want somebody to say, oh, she's an inspiring person or, you know, because again, that's so personal. That's, you know, that's such a relative idea. And so I think focusing on the direction of that energy, um, it, it becomes easier to move in alignment. Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And with that and, and not worry so much about the details, as you know, I talk about like focusing on the direction and not the details because yeah. the details aren't my business. And so somebody's experience of me or reaction to my title or, you know, where I own property or where I live or what I'm wearing, like all those things. If, if you need that as an anchor point for who you think I am, then I hope that my experience with you expands your idea of identity and that you Mm -hmm. can get more from, from your time with me than that, because Mm -hmm. those are just expressions of me in the world, but they're for sure by no means holistic. Yeah. And those who might not know that might still be in the space of these things are tangled up because that is a serious space that if you are living in America is put on you at a certain period of time. I don't know if it's high school, college, if you don't. From the beginning. I mean, the very beginning. We have people applying for, uh, for preschools, you know, daycare for their kids. I mean, (laughs) in the womb, like what stroller did you buy your baby? You know, what baby shower gift did you bring to the person's shower as a signal for what the baby's going to have? I mean, it, it, we start that way. And I realize I'm saying that in a way from a place of privilege, but performative success, if the success is not on your terms, it's performative. Full stop. If you have not identified and defined what success looks like for you in your life, and, and your job, the way you make money, the way you make a living, which is important. We all have to make a living. And by the way, I think we studies have shown that when you do meaning making work, work that's meaningful to, to you, it's it, you contribute, it contributes to your happiness, right? So that matters. But at the same time, that has to be yours. And when it's not yours and you're striving towards it because you're trying to check a box or again, you're trying to, you're managing optics, it's performative success. So you can love being a CMO and that's great if that's what you want to do and you feel like you are showing up and contributing to the world the way you want to. If you, and we talked about this, I I was like, well, if I'm going to be a CMO, I need to love it. And if I don't love it, I need to leave. And if I, like, what am I going to do? Go get a bigger CMO job? (laughs) 
if I don't want to be a CMO, then who cares? Then it's then actually I I feel like I am failing myself because I'm actually not showing up for what I really want to be doing or how I really want to be, you know, engaged or how I want to expand. If I've done something for 20 years, then I can choose to leave it too. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. So I, I think, yeah, you you just gotta ask yourself, like, what does success mean to me? And success is such a strange word. It, like I almost wouldn't even start there. For me, it's about quality of life. And what is the quality of life? What does that look like for me? And what needs to be true for that quality of life to be intact? Yeah. And of course, we need some financial means to have a certain quality of life, but like I, I'm going to argue that it's probably not rooted in a certain title or a certain company or, you know, it, it's not, it's not sitting on your, your quality of life is not sitting on your resume. Mm, mm. Wow. Yeah. I, again, like that process of untangling that, I love that you were just like, actually, let's say it's, a, it's from the top. So nobody, anyone listening, if you're having a moment of like, I'm untangled, you are not judged here. There is no shame here. We understand mm-hmm. it. We are telling you it started from the top. So if you have not had the experience of being able to confront that, I hope and I invite you to get a little of that in this conversation because truly like sometimes you do need to be invited to this next step of, hey, you don't have to live like that or believe that about yourself because the people who benefit from you doing that, they're not going to tell you. They're not going to say, hey, come on out. And like, you know, we'd love you to have the the holistic version of yourself. They're not doing that. And so I'm really hoping that you're hearing Daria do it as we speak. You're hearing me do it as we speak, because wow, even the, the permission slip you just gave me on top of that, of like that meaningful success, like really, what does it mean to me? And just constantly being willing to analyze it again, to check it check it out, to, to, to sit with it, to confront it without guilt, without like other people's voices. And how long was that process for you? I would say it started for me, gosh, probably about 12 years ago. I remember saying oh. to a friend, I was still at Estee Lauder. I remember saying to a friend, so maybe if I was at Estee, it would have been in maybe 10 or 11 years ago. And I said, you know, I want to get paid to be Daria Burke. And she was like, what does that mean? And I said, well, I want to get paid to show up and to be me. And I'm not talking about this whole bring your full authentic self to work. And now people just want to show up to work in all kinds of ways. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying I want to be able to show up fully expressed as myself, offer what I have to value or, you know, of, of value and let that be enough. Hmm. And I think a lot of times we're so busy trying to contort and put ourselves in the box or, you know, fit a job description or mold ourselves to something that somebody else has outlined, as opposed to saying, does this fit the way I want to show up? Does this culture, does this environment, does this space, does this person have what I'm looking for and how I bring that forward? And so the more clear I became about what that meant, the more I could choose to work at companies where that was increasingly true. So even mm-hmm. even though I left a, a field that I, I, I love and you know I love beauty, I love fashion, and even though I chose to leave that world and, and really 
I would say, enjoy it as a board director and, and have a different relationship with it. I l- left knowing that I was able to do that, that I was able to bring more and more of myself into those environments and not, it doesn't mean that you don't think about the goals of the organization and that you're not thinking about the bigger picture, but I'm I'm doing it with the integrity that comes with being fully expressed and saying mm-hmm. to my team, I'm tired or whatever it was in the moment, you know, and, and it all happened during lockdown. And I think it allowed, um, at least that my last role really occurred during lockdown, most of it. And so it allowed me, I think, to just double down on vulnerability and double down on that humanity and show up as much as I possibly could in that way and invite other people to do the same thing. But it takes time. And for me, yeah, it started in my very early 30s, you know, 30, 31. Um, and I would say became crystallized probably mid-30s. If I'm honest and tracking, um, and it's ongoing because we change. And so what I want today and what Daria Burke looks like today and how I show up today is different than what it's going to look like in five years. And both will yeah. be authentic and true. Yeah. You you kind of hinted on my really next exciting pivot for me is you did leave, you know, your corporate job and your corporate life and your experience and your relationship with it. I love that you pointed that out. And now you are on a new journey. You are about to write a book. You are about to write a book. Yes. You are going on this new journey of being an author and a first time author in Mm -hmm. this way, because you have written many, many wonderful think pieces. You have your own newsletter, but now you're taking a different journey. And I'd love to know what you're the most curious about of this version of yourself going forward? I love this question mostly because I haven't considered it. I'm so present in the writing process. I have not really thought about what's on the other side of this, not because I'm not excited about it and because I think it's going to be really wonderful to have my book out in the world and to be able to talk about it in depth and, to hopefully allow that be a point of connection with more people and for more people to, in in many ways, maybe perhaps, hopefully feel seen um, in, in my own story. And I've not thought much about it. And so let's see, I, I probably am most curious about what it looks like to almost in a full-time capacity, be writing a book. You know, I think it's, it, it went from writing, went from being this thing that I had a very kind of fraught relationship with, which is definitely rooted in perfectionism Mm. and to then being something that I enjoyed and liked exploring ideas in that way. And then being this thing that I also got to be in dialogue with others through, uh, which I think is really, really wonderful. And it's slowly kind of taken over my life. You know, writing has really taken over my life. And I think, so that's exciting. And I, I, I think I'm just curious as to what it then looks like as a job, you know, like it's now my job. 
um, (laughs) to write. And it's really a wonderful thing to be able to say, but yeah, I think it's still, I'm, I'm still metabolizing that in a lot of ways. And, uh, and then, you know, just putting pen to paper. So what is it like to go away and do this? What is it like to really kind of close a lot of doors or close access to me in certain ways, um, for this to be brought forward. And then, yeah, I think maybe the bigger question that I would have is that I'm curious about is, um, what does it look like to reintegrate with this as my work? So, you know, coming, emerging from the first draft of my manuscript, which is due this year, um, (laughs) you know, what does it look like to kind of have this new rhythm and new pace and how will that impact, how will I allow it to impact and how will I want it to impact the rest of my life? Cause I think it will, I just don't know yet what, what Mm. it, what, what it will mean and what it will look like. Yeah. It's really encouraging. And in my personal life, I get so encouraged by you in this. And I, I, I really want to share this with other people and other, our listeners you talk so beautifully about leaving mastery and beginning mm-hmm. again and enjoying the mastery program pr- process and then beginning again and, and the beauty mm-hmm. in that. How can we invite ourselves? I was going to say you as well, but I'm like, I think you got it. And <laughs> maybe you need to invite us <laughs> of like how to be comfortable leaving our mastery, whatever the work we've done for either so long. And that honestly spans past career. I'm thinking of relationships that sometimes we're in that are like, we feel like because we mastered it, it's, we can't let it go. If we know it's not serving us, if it's not moving us forward, we, you know, friendships, cities, like it actually can go over a span of so many things. As Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, I'm like, wow, there's so many things we feel like we master. And then we're like, oh, okay, well, like, when can I change my calling card? When can I update my operating system? How can I actually even tell myself that I can begin again? So I'd love if you can help invite us into new ways to think about that. Yeah, I would say the first thing I think I would offer is that the fact that you get to choose should be empowering Mm. unto itself. I think sometimes we're so worried about the choice and making the choice. And then what happens after we make the choice and, you know, and it's like, but just maybe just sit in the fact that you get to decide. That's the hardest part, but it's also the most empowering place, I think. And so I tend to be someone who craves. I love to, to learn, to know. I love to explore. I uh, just, discovery is one of the most, I, I think, gift, greatest gifts that we have, you know, to be in awe of, of something I think is just so fabulous and delightful. Mm-hmm. Um, so I will say that. And I think that can be as small as going outside and, and seeing, Uh, you know, it's spring here in New York. And so things are blooming. And so my favorite trees starting to look different and things are, you know, blooming or uh, I replanted it without telling a really long story. I had these hydrangea bushes that I had, my gardener had planted them in the front of my house um, two summers ago and the deer ate them almost immediately. And I was, I was in LA. I was so sad. So I said, we'll just cover them and then we will figure out what to do. 
So last year I decided by myself, I did this. I, I relocated every single one of them. I think there are 11, 10 or 11 of them. I relocated them into planters and these are bushes and they're big, they're heavy <laughs> into planters and put them on my deck. And the other day they started to, and I didn't know if they would bloom because I, I didn't know if I was doing it right. And I tried to follow all the directions. I was like YouTubing, like how to transplant hydrangeas. <laughs> and I was like, well, worst case scenario, I kill them. Yeah. Oh, but you know what? The deer was going to eat them anyway. So, you know, there was nothing to lose. And right. and I, so I, I moved them and I was like, please, please, please don't die. And last summer I didn't get a lot from them because they had been through a lot, I think. And now they're starting to bloom. So I'm seeing these leaves emerge on what were these little scraggly, weird little branches and they're green and they're, you know, the leaves are getting big. And I think sometimes it can be that small. It can be something that small. Like I love tennis and I'm terrible at it. I'm so bad at it and I don't care. And I don't need to be good at it. I'm not mm. trying to I, look if I'm ever lucky enough to play a, a round with Serena Williams that would be enough for me. <laughs> you know, like if I was good enough to go a proper game with a friend, that would be good enough for me. Yeah. I'm so happy to be bad at it because I just like doing it. And so I think, yeah, like it's okay to master things. And it's more important in a lot of ways to have a beginner's mind. And I think, you know, so much of our, our willingness to begin does start with fear. So I, I would always kind of take us back to that exercise of, what is your fear really trying to tell you? And I think um, it, it may be controversial to, to say, but like, I don't believe in imposter syndrome. I just like flat out don't believe in it. I believe that you have mastered something or you're starting something and you may have thing that you were brought in to do and you're starting it in a new place, but that doesn't, I don't, I don't believe in being an imposter. You're either, you know, a, a master or a beginner. So yeah, I think you've got to detach from why you're worried about starting over in the first place. And I, I'm talking about small things, right? Yes. I'm starting a, a new career at a, a phase in my life that it could also seem very scary or daunting for some people. And I think the pull of the potential of what was possible was greater than my desire to stay comfortable. Mm -hmm. My desire to stay mm -hmm. in a place of deep knowing was it, there was nothing that, you know, would have kept me there. And so I think that comfort zone you have to sort of figure out like, are you in this? I wrote about this recently, the zone of excellence um, that in the book, The Big Leap, which I know I've talked to you about must reading, um, is this really wonderful place where you are doing what you do well and you are probably being well compensated for it and recognized for it. And that's a cozy place, right? That is like a mm -hmm. cashmere blanket and a glass of red wine. Like who does not want to be mm -hmm. in that zone, right? It feels wonderful but that's not your zone of genius. And, and mm -hmm. it will likely take the big leap to get to from that zone of excellence to your zone of genius. And so only, you know, what that looks and feels like, but I would argue it's probably rooted in fear. Nine times out of 10, it's rooted in fear 
It could be fear of what other people think, fear of starting over, fear of looking silly, fear of not having enough money, fear of not making enough money when you first start. I, I pick a thing. I don't know, right? It could be so many things. Um, and and those are all very real, very valid, very deeply crippling if you let them fears. And and you know, mm. it's your job to to create a new relationship to it, um, knowing that like whatever is for you is is for you and whatever's on the other side of that moment, that leap is is probably exponentially greater than where you are right now, even as the master of whatever domain you're in. Right, right. Ooh, okay. Before we wrap, okay. You just said something so gorgeous about imposter syndrome. What is the lie you think we believe? Because many of us have shared imposter syndrome at one or another for you. So you to be a non-believer of it, that means there's a lie you just don't believe in. What's the lie that we that most people I do? I love that. I believe that the lie that we have bought into is that every space that we inhabit, we have to be perfect. Honestly, I think there's this expectation that doing something new, if it's predicated on something you've done in the past, that you should know everything. And I'm like, when did we decide that we have to know everything? And why does not knowing everything make me an imposter? Like, I think that's insane, <laughs> for lack of a better word. And so I think the lie that we believed or that we allowed someone to tell us and that we now tell ourselves is that I am not enough or I am an imposter because I don't know everything. Hmm. And also, if everything fits and is neat and, you know, is, 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 digestible and you can get your hands around it, then it's probably too small. Yeah. You know, it's wow. so I don't, I don't think yeah. it's, it's not an imposter syndrome. It is, you know, whatever it is inside of you that is asking you to expand. That's what that is. And you can take somebody else's information. You know, I think of all of this as context someone's feedback, someone's, how someone treats you, how someone, you know, may ask you a question or suggest that you should know something. That's all context. That is not your reality. That's information, but it is not your reality. So yeah, I don't believe in it at all. And I think the lie is that somehow you've missed something. Along the way, and I just think it's bullshit. Can I say bullshit? <laughs> you can absolutely say bullshit. You can absolutely say it. Oh my god! Um, wow. I hope you guys got the same revelation out of that that I did. And if you didn't, get it later. Tell a friend. Whatever you got to do. I mean, re-listen to that part because that was a beautiful permission slip. Um, lastly, I want to ask you: What is the last thing you forgave yourself for for the first time? I knew you were going to ask this question and I forgot to prepare for it because <laughs> it's such a good one. Mm. The last thing that I gave myself, that I forgave myself for, for the first time, 
I think was just being completely vulnerable with people who I didn't know yet Mm. and then beating myself up for it. And because that's a new habit, right? Growth is a practice. And so I was practicing this different way of being vulnerable. And then I, I didn't like the way it felt. So I beat myself up over it. And then I gave myself grace and forgave myself. And one of the things that I, I, I think a lot about forgiveness is a, a quote. I don't know if I've ever shared this with you, but a quote from David White, who's a poet. And he says, to forgive is to assume the identity, uh, to assume a greater identity than the person who was first hurt. And I love that because whether it's giving yourself that permission, that grace, that forgiveness, or forgiving somebody else, like you are assuming an identity greater than the person who was first hurt. And so um, I just, I really hold on to that. But yeah, that was probably one that for the first time I had to let myself off the hook for. Are you still practicing? Every day. Are you kidding? Every day. It's actually, that's why it's such a hard question. Cause I'm like, I don't know, probably yesterday, but yeah. Um, yeah. Practicing every day. Daria Burke, everyone. This was such a lovely conversation. You, you totally, wow. You, you pass out a number of permission slips in this conversation and some that you were able to reiterate in me and in the things we've talked about and some that I feel like I really, there are just a few points that I hope everyone is able to take away. Again, at whatever pace and timing you need it, this conversation I think really gives that space to, like you said, confront some of those fears without guilt and shame, confront some of that imposter syndrome, laugh at that. I actually had a moment where I was like, I'm gonna write on my wall today, what the fuck is (laughs) imposter syndrome? And that's all. I'm not going to answer the question. I'm going to leave it there. That's hilarious to me. I'm doing that based on what you said. So, Daria Burke, everyone, thank you. Thank you. you. Stacey Ike, this is amazing. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, leave a review. And while you're at it, share this with someone you love or just someone you like as long as you share it. Stay connected between episodes and follow us on Instagram at human to human with Stacey Ike. That's the number two, not the word two. You can also check me out at One Take Stace. I'm your host, Stacey Ike. And remember, curiosity is the pathway to consciousness. So let's take the next step together. Hey there, ever thought about what makes your heart beat a little faster? Oh, you mean like when you discover a new track that just speaks to you? Yeah, or finding a movie that you can't stop thinking about? Well, get ready to feel that excitement all over again because Amazon Prime is here to take your entertainment and shopping experience to the next level. Absolutely. Prime isn't just about getting your packages quicker. It's about diving into a world of endless possibilities, from the latest releases to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. And don't even get me started on the music. Prime offers concert specials that will transport you right to the front room. It's like being at the hottest gigs without leaving your living room. I use Prime to tap in with some of my favorite artists' live shows from any and every genre of music. Trust me, Prime is a game changer. It's like having a personalized superstore and entertainment hub right at your fingertips. So why wait? Head over to Amazon.com forward slash Prime 
and started experiencing entertainment like never before.